How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. This conversation features David M. Rubenstein in conversation with Annette Gordon-Reed. So you went to Harvard Law School. Yes, I did. And you grew up in Texas. Mm -hmm. You wanted to be a lawyer. I went to Harvard Law School because I thought that becoming a lawyer might be more practical than being a novelist and writing a great American novel. Uh, And uh, I think it turned out to be. Well, let's let's go into this. Um, You wrote uh, you've written two books so far about this. One was the original book you wrote Mm -hmm. about uh, Jefferson and Sally Hemings, Mm -hmm. and then. The other one's the Hemings of Monticello, which won the Pulitzer Prize. So that's for people who may not be familiar with the background. um, Who was Sally Hemings and when did Thomas Jefferson first meet her? Sally Hemings was the daughter of Elizabeth Hemings, who was an enslaved woman uh, who belonged to a man named John Wales, who also happened to be Jefferson's father-in-law. So when Jefferson married Martha Wales, she brought to Monticello with her Elizabeth Hemings and the six children that Elizabeth Hemings okay. had with John Wales. And one of them was Sally Hemings. So he would have met Sally Hemings when she was about three. Okay. Or two so or three. to make sure everybody understands the background again, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, his wife dies when he's 39. Mm-hmm. She has given him two children who survive ultimately, mm-hmm. I guess. But on her deathbed, mm-hmm. she said, I want you to promise me you'll never marry again. Mm-hmm. And he says, yes. He promised that. This is a story that's told by the members of the Hemings family. Martha Jefferson had difficulty with childbearing, and um, she died as as the result of complications from uh, her So she died. Um, Thomas Jefferson had then already written the uh, Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm, That had mm -hmm. happened before and so forth, and we'll get to that in a moment. But he's 39. Wife dies. Mm -hmm. He's very distraught. Mm -hmm. Um, She had been widowed, but they clearly were in love. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. So ultimately, he gets an assignment to go to France to more or less serve as our ambassador. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Yes. And he brought one of his daughters over? Mm -hmm. He brought one daughter over. He went to Paris in 1784 with his eldest daughter, Martha. And he takes along with him a man named James Hemings, who was Sally Hemings' older brother. And he's going to be taught to become a French chef. Jefferson liked French cooking. And so he wanted a French chef for Monticello. And so he takes them over. And while he is there... He's left two younger daughters with his sister-in-law in in the company of Sally Hemings as sort of a companion. And they are at his sister-in-law's home. Now, in this convoluted story, the sister-in-law, of course, is Sally's half-sister. Right. So they're all there at Eppington. And one of the girls dies, Polly. And Jefferson, at this point, says, I want my other daughter with me. And he wants to have his daughter, Polly, brought over by what he says, a careful Negro woman, uh, such as Isabel. Isabel Hearn was a woman. She was about 28 years old at that point. But instead, 
his sister-in-law sends Sally Hemings over with the younger daughter. She's 14, so she's the minder for a nine-year-old. And Abigail Adams is aghast. They go to London to the Adams' house before they go to Paris, and she's like, what is this kid doing with this other kid? She thought she was too young to be uh, supervising. Okay, but when Sally Hemings, uh, make sure everybody understands, Sally Hemings' father Mm -hmm. was the same father as... Jefferson's wife. Jefferson's wife. So, yeah. so Sally Hemings was, in effect, the half-sister of his wife. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So when he saw Sally Hemings the first time, mm-hmm. or at least when, he, when she came over, um, she was then 14 years old. Mm-hmm. So he never actually saw his wife at 14, but mm-hmm. he could imagine that's what she might have looked like. Well, I mean, we don't know. Sally Hemings could have looked definitely like a half-sister, sometimes looked like it. Sally Hemings was three-quarters white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Sally Hemings ultimately connects with... Thomas Jefferson, they go to <laughs> Paris, to and then um, Sally Hemings is there, 14, mm-hmm. and then the two daughters are there. So Wait, but wait, no. Is that right? It's a, what happens is that instead of going to get his daughter, Jefferson sends one of his servants to get them, sends uh, Adrian Petit to London to pick up the girls, and Abigail Adams is furious. That he didn't show up. That he didn't show yeah. up, because as you know, your daughter... You've made her come over here. She didn't want to come at first. You made her come over here, and now you're not even going to come to get her. They but tricked he, her into they, they, Yeah, yeah. They actually tricked her onto the boat. They had Sally Hemings go on the ship uh, back in Virginia, and then they said, oh, we're just going to play a game. And then when she wakes up, she falls asleep. They're out to sea. Hey, so um, Sally Hemings shows up in mm-hmm. Paris. Uh, the two daughters are there. And Thomas Jefferson doesn't like living in Paris, or he loves living in Paris? He loves living in Paris. He, he likes the music. He likes the architecture, the, the civilization. There's no slavery in France, is that right? Uh, no, there's slavery in the colonies. There's not supposed to be slavery in Paris. There are no slaves in France, they said, but sometimes French colonials did bring their slaves to Paris. And very often people there, when they did, they would petition for freedom. And every petition for freedom that was made in Paris during that time was granted. So it was pretty much a pro forma thing. Okay. So at some point, Thomas Jefferson decides to go back to mm-hmm. Monticello in Virginia. So he says to James Hemings, uh, you're free, more or less, you could be free. I can't force you back, but you should come back. Mm-hmm. And what does he say to Sally Hemings? Well, by this time, she is going to have a baby. And Madison Hemings said the baby is Jefferson's baby. And... She did not want to go back to the United States because if she had a child in the United States, the child would be enslaved because slavery followed the mother. Whatever your mother was, you were. And Jefferson promises her that if she comes back with him, she will have a good life at Monticello. Any children they had would be freed when they were 21. And she agreed to that. I I should say at the time, nobody wanted to go. He he was the only person who wanted to come back to the United States. His daughters didn't want to come back. His secretary, William Short, did not want to come back. James Hemings didn't want to come back. They were having the time of their lives there. And he was like, I'm losing control of all of these people. And he was the one who was keen on getting everybody home. And you indicated Madison Hemings said that the deal was you come back, your children, our children will mm-hmm. be freed at mm-hmm. the age of 21 mm-hmm. and, and so forth. Uh, but who was Madison Hemings and when did he say this? Madison Hemings was the third child uh, who survived. Beverly was a male, was the oldest, and then there was Harriet. And then there's James, his name was James Madison Hemings. Uh, and he was born in 1805. 
He gave an interview to uh, a reporter in 1873, the Pike County, Ohio Republican, when he, he was talking about his life at Monticello and uh, mentioned this and said this sort of, not in passing, but it's not the main point of the, of the, of the recollections that he gives. But he's talking about his life in Ohio and life at Monticello. So when they go back, they're back in Monticello. Um, then children are born to mm-hmm. Sally Hemings. She mm-hmm. then delivers uh, seven children, mm-hmm. and uh, four of them survive. Four survive. Was it uncommon for slave owners to have affairs with, if affair is the right word, uh, <laughs> with uh, their slaves? Well, children with, let's say, have children. No, it, yes, it was common. It was very common. And you can see that now in the DNA testing. That Well, you can see it in the family histories of African-American people, but now it's been confirmed by DNA, the sort of population geneticists who go around and test people and find European Y-male chromosomes in almost half of African-American men. So Thomas Jefferson, when he comes back, he ultimately gets back in government. When he comes back from France, he's made Secretary of State under George Washington, Mm -hmm. ultimately quits, goes (laughs) back, uh, becomes vice president under John Adams, Mm -hmm. and then he's elected our third president. At the time he's running for president, does anybody mention Sally Hemings? Yes, but not by name. The rumors about him began around 1798 and 1799. They're sort of blind items, if you know page six of the post. Uh, you know, <laughs> what senior statesman is known for his interest in yellow-skinned women or whatever? Um, those kinds of things that uh, sort of started appearing and poems and so forth that people were writing about it, but not her name. Uh, nobody mentioned Sally and James Callender after he's right. president. Who is James Callender? James Callender was a Scottish emigre who came to the United States and was, I guess you could call him a journalist. And Jefferson was interested in his talents and paid him actually, supported him as he was writing some really pretty rough things about John Adams in the 1790s during a very, very contentious time. Because Jefferson and Adams might be competitors to be president. Oh yes, absolutely. So he, you know, and you know, the Federalists were given as good as they got, you know, they were on, they had the other side as well. He had supported Jefferson uh, in the 1790s. And then under the Alien and Sedition Act, he was put in jail by Adams's people from the laws that he supported. And Jefferson promised to pardon everybody who was put in jail for writing allegedly seditious things about the president. And once he got to be president, he did. So he lets, Calendar is out. Calendar wants to be paid back for all of the work that he had done. He wanted to be paid hundreds of thousands of dollars? No, no, no. He wanted to be the postmaster of Richmond. Uh, he wanted a patronage job. He wanted that. And Jefferson, you know, this is this is sort of, it, it happens, the people who are sort of attack dogs during a campaign and then come and want to be like a, a secretary or something. And people right. say, uh, no, you're an attack dog. We don't make you, you know, the, the secretary of, you don't make you the postmaster of Richmond. We want responsible people opening the mail. And he said, no, uh, I'm not going to give it to you. And then that's when James Callender says, I know all of these things about you uh, that people have told me in Charlottesville and Richmond. He actually went to Charlottesville and Richmond and asked around Jefferson's neighbors. And he wrote a story in 1802 called The President Again. And he's by this wench, Sally, he has five children and so forth. And that that's when it broke onto, you know, so, not the national scene, but also the international scene so, people wrote about. So, you know, if somebody's accused of having children with a slave, which mm-hmm. was not considered to be socially appropriate for whites in those days, certainly not for President of the United States, 
uh, you presumably would respond. Uh, what did Jefferson say? Uh, nothing. He just said. He said nothing because he, you know, well, first place, Jefferson was not a fool. He was many things, uh, but not that. And not to say that Alexander Hamilton was, but just a few years before, Alexander Hamilton had gotten into trouble because people assumed that he was stealing from the Treasury. And he said, I'm not stealing from the Treasury. All those payments that I'm giving, they're for some other reason. And he basically admitted in a pamphlet that he was being extorted by the husband of a woman with whom he was sleeping, and that he was carrying on an adulterous affair, thinking, oh, if I'm okay on the public side, this private stuff, that's not anybody's business. Of course, it ruined him. Uh, it was the worst thing for him to have done. So Jefferson was a very savvy politician, just shut up. He didn't say, never, no, it his, never. His surrogates came out and said, oh, this didn't happen and blah, blah, blah. But he never Jefferson never about admitted this. it, never denied it. No. He did say things like, you know, he had said all of these lies, all of these things they're saying about me are untrue. And so what people say is, aha, that's a denial, except. It's really not, because they were saying lots of things about him. So when he was president, did... And some uh, of them were true. When he was president, did um, Sally Hemings ever come to the White House? Don't know. People went back and forth between okay. Monticello and, and um, the White House all the time, or the president's house, as it was called. So when Jefferson is finished being president, he goes back to Monticello. Mm -hmm. And now he is back there. He's got his oldest daughter, the only surviving child mm -hmm. uh, living there, Martha. Mm -hmm. And she has... 11 children or? She had 12, but one died. So right. she's 11 okay. kids. 11 children. So the scene is you've got 11 children or some some of them at some time living there who is or his uh, grandchildren. Mm -hmm. He's got the children from Sally Hemings living there. Mm -hmm. What was it like? <laughs> I mean, all these what kids. What was are it like? Well, that's the interesting thing. Uh, Madison Hemings describes Jefferson as being kind, but he says he was not in the habit of showing us partiality or fatherly affection. But he was affectionate with his grandchildren, meaning, you know, he bounced them on his knee and he was playful and all this kind of things. But he wasn't in the habit of doing that with them, is what they said. But when I was writing the Hemingses of Monticello, there are several letters, about six letters, where he writes to his overseer at Poplar Forest. And he says, I'm coming up with Johnny Hemings and his two assistants. Now, all of the sons were apprenticed to John Hemings as the master carpenter. So he and Madison Hemings and Beverly and Eston would be at Poplar Forest, his retreat, for weeks at a time. So it's like, it's not a sense of him not being around them. It's that he's not acting like towards them like they are his legitimate white children, there's, which he wouldn't uh, have done. There's a report of, uh, that you, were, you have in your book about, I guess, a foreign dignitary or somebody is having dinner mm -hmm. at Monticello, and he looks up and seeing he's being served food by a servant who looks like Thomas Jefferson, mm -hmm. who was his, presumably his son from Sally Hemings. Was that kind of no, unusual or not? I, 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 don't, I don't know that that story is actually true. It's a good story. It's, it's a great story. <laughs> no, it's, it's too good to check. No, but I don't know that that story is true because the time that they're saying that, her children wouldn't be of that age and they didn't, they weren't servants. They worked with John Hemings. So that seems like it's okay. probably one of those things that that people said. So, but why didn't Thomas Jefferson just say, you know, I'm in love with you. I'm with you for 38 <laughs> years of my life. Uh, why don't we get married? Uh, why, why, didn't they, why couldn't they just get married? It was against, it was against the law. <laughs> it's against the law. It against they, the could law. Get married. You couldn't, they couldn't marry. You couldn't marry in, in right. Virginia until 1967. But some people... <laughs> Loving versus Virginia. 
In some cases, in some cases, um, Sally Hemings uh, had a sister who lived with the man in mm -hmm. Charlottesville, yeah. and they were kind of not married, but they were kind of living together yeah. openly. Why couldn't Thomas Jefferson be more open about it? Or why do you think he wasn't? Well, she was living there with him. I don't know what else she could do besides, you know, besides what they were doing. The neighbors were saying they're living together. They, they cohabit. He's talking about Mary Hemings, who lived with Thomas Bell, who was a, a merchant and a friend of Jefferson's. And they, you know, corresponded, visited each other and so forth. And when he died, he actually left Mary Hemings the house and um, property, which you can't do to a slave, but you can do it if people in the community go along right. with it. So people often ask you, I'm sure, uh, well, how did Sally Hemings slip into his bedroom? <laughs> and uh, you might describe how he set up his house so that nobody could actually go into his bedroom unless mm -hmm. presumably they knew a certain uh, code to the lock or <laughs> they came in through a certain well, door. Well, I mean, Sally Hemings, her job, Madison Hemings said, and other people said as well, was to take care of Jefferson's rooms. She was his chambermaid, took care of his wardrobe and his room. So she was supposed to be there. There would be a reason for her to be coming in and out. But um, he had, in the early 1800s when he was president, built onto his bedroom a set, you can see it now if you go to Monticello, a porch and a sort of covered porch and steps. You could get into Jefferson's room from the outside. There are multiple ways to get in from the outside or from the inside. And he could leave without people knowing on the inside that he'd gone. So it's sort of an interesting way of setting up his life. Very, very private. He had special locks on his door that could be uh, locked remotely and double blinds and sort of a, a panel next to his bed. Extreme privacy. Margaret Baird Smith said that nobody could get into his room uh, unless he let them in, because oh. he was the person who had the key, and presumably South His Hemings. room was his bedroom, he had a little bathroom, mm -hmm. kind of, and then he had his uh, library study. and his study. It was built as sort of almost, he conceived of this when he was in Paris. It's built for maximum comfort right. for himself, not so much for other people. You know, people talk about the, the narrow staircases at Monticello, but those rooms were built just for visitors. He didn't know in the 1790s that his daughter was going to get right. married and that her husband was going to fail and that they would all have to move into the house in 1809. That was not his thought. So the it's very private bachelor quarters. He, he's pretty clearly not going to get married again. So James Callender says these things about Thomas Jefferson. He never admits him, never denies him, more or less, mm. but uh, says they're scurrilous, let's say. When history is starting to be written about Thomas Jefferson after he dies in 1826. Um, historians begin to write about him, but do they mention the Sally Hemings thing or does that just go away or people assume that actually that the father was somebody else? Well, they mention it to sort of suggest that it's not true. And then one historian, Henry Randall is the, the most famous early biographer of Jefferson, gets access to a letter or actually tells another Jefferson biographer that he had seen a letter and, and actually talked to one of Jefferson's grandchildren who said, well, the reason Sally Hemings' children look just like Jefferson is that they are the children of his nephew, oh. one of the cars. And, you know, people can look like their cousins look like one another. You know, okay. But that's the story that they tell. And so historians believe that. And part of my first book was to ask, why do you believe this? I mean, if you're looking at documents, in the course of telling this story, the grandchildren say multiple things that are not true. And typically that makes you 
distrust people, but it didn't with the historians. All they were focusing on was that he said that they were saying he didn't do it. So an alternative story that is accepted in history is that it was Jefferson's nephew who fathered the children, even though there's no this is connection. Mr. Carr? Yeah, one hey. of the Carr nephews, so, Carr sons. Um, when, all right, when you write your first book, mm -hmm. uh, you kind of go through documentary evidence, you mm -hmm. do a lot of research, and mm -hmm. you kind of say this seems unlikely yeah. that the historical uh, acceptance of Carr as the father is probably true. It's probably mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. But then DNA evidence comes out. Mm -hmm. And the DNA evidence shows what? Shows a connection between the Hemings descendant that they tested and the Jefferson descendants. No connection. The Cars are a totally different <laughs> group of people, the Y chromosome. And another family, a black family, the Woodsons, who had claimed descent from Jefferson and Sally Hemings, you know, which I denied in my first book and had some very, 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 very sharp conversations with members of that, of that family about it. It showed that there was, in fact, no connection between okay, the two. So of them. the DNA evidence comes out, mm -hmm. and um, I guess that's case closed. All the white descendants of Thomas Jefferson agree that this is. Uh, <laughs> no. Oh, they didn't agree. No, they didn't agree. No, they didn't agree, and they, many of them don't agree. Um, they even say, today, they even today, agree. they say no. It must have been another Jefferson. Because they didn't know when they picked the cars. Of course, Jefferson's grandchildren couldn't know that there would one day be a time when you could differentiate between maternal relatives and paternal relatives. So they picked the most convenient people. And the people who had been writing to me saying, it's the cars, it's the cars, like the next day after the DNA came out, start saying, oh, it must be another Jefferson relative because it just cannot be he who did this. So there are people who write books that say it was Jefferson's brother. Yeah, Jefferson's brother. Okay. But based on the DNA, DNA evidence, seems unlikely. Well, it's not the DNA evidence. I mean, the DNA evidence is part of it because it kills the car story, which is the story that the family had been telling. Um, it's the other stuff as well. Okay. The pattern of our conceptions, the names of the children, they're all named for his friends and favorite relatives. Diary entries from some of his friends about all of it. Okay, well, let's say that some so relatives or descendants don't say it, but the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, mm -hmm. which owns Monticello, mm -hmm. um, Thomas Jefferson Foundation bought Monticello from the Levy family. Yeah. It was said in the 1920s that having a Jewish family own Monticello was un-American. Yeah. <laughs> and as a result of that, the Levy family had to give it up and sell it to the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Mm -hmm. So the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, <laughs> now, uh, did they agree with your uh, analysis? Yes, they do. And so now when you go to Monticello and the film that they show, it says most historians believe that he was the father of all of her children. That's a part of the of the story. They are now going to be interpreting her room, what they take to be her room for a particular time at Monticello. Strangely enough, most people in America believed the story, I think, before my book and the DNA. I don't think they had much of a problem with it. It was mainly historians who were really yeah. upset about it. So Thomas Jefferson's father-in-law had six children with mm -hmm. Sally Hemings' mother. Yeah. So, and lots of slave owners were having children with their slaves. Mm -hmm. So what's the big deal about Thomas Jefferson? It is presumably that he wrote the famous sentence, <laughs> all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. And he yet was a slave owner and he's impregnating a slave and so forth. So is it because Thomas Jefferson was the, the, the author of the Declaration of Independence that it gets this much attention? I think so, because, well, because of what he symbolizes. He is a symbol of America. And if you say that a symbol of America had children with an African-American woman, a person who would have been considered under, you know, even though she's mainly white, African-American, then in a way it's like saying the country is not really white. Oh. And that's 
a lot for some people to take. I mean, the founding fathers are typically looked to as a way of excluding right. people. Well, he, they weren't talking about you. I mean, these are our fathers. But if you have somebody who was like literally an actual father of people who were non-white, that messes the story up. By the way, when Thomas Jefferson died, he died on July the 4th, 1826, the mm -hmm. same day as John Adams. John Adams. 50th anniversary of the declaration. And did he honor his commitment to free the children of Sally Hemings? Yes, he did. The two eldest, Beverly, William Beverly uh, and Harriet, he writes in the farm book that they ran away, but he actually, they left. He put Harriet on a stagecoach. Beverly left a few months before her and they go to Washington and we don't really know what happened to them. That's something I would like to try to hopefully be able to find out. Uh, Madison and Eston are freed in his will. Sally Hemings is not formally freed. Why? She's, why she's not, well, we don't know why. I mean, because he didn't say why. But if you think of what would have happened if he did free her, you, could, you might understand why he wouldn't do it. Because in 1806, they passed a law saying that if you were freed, any slave, in, enslaved person who was freed had to get permission from the legislature to remain in the state. So he would have had to write to the legislature right. and say, he did for the sons, but for her. And he would have to say, gentlemen of the legislature, would you allow Sally Hemings to you know, stay in Virginia? And because she was over 45, he would have to have detailed how he planned to take care of her. So then he would say, here's what I'm going to, the money and the land that I'm going to provide for it would be a total admission that this had happened. And his daughter, I think he would have thought it would have been humiliating. Martha Randolph, his daughter, was the most important person in Jefferson's right. life. There's no question about it. And to humiliate her and her children by making these public statements, when all he had to do was to say, go into town and live the rest of your life, which is what happened. In the 1830 census, she's listed as a, as a, white, as a free white woman. In the 1833 census, she's list listed as a free colored woman. So, you know, there's law on the books and there's law in the way it works. And in that community, everybody knew who she was. Now, do we know much about her? Do we know what she looked like? Was she literate? Could she read and write? We don't know if she was literate. We know her brothers, Robert and James, were literate. There's a very, very long list of French cooking utensils that James, in his own hand, he corresponded, Robert and uh, Jefferson corresponded. All those letters are missing. Um, now, Jefferson was uh, fastidious about keeping track of all of his letters. He mm -hmm. had a special machine, so mm -hmm. he wrote a letter, and then there was a, another pen that was writing the same thing. So we have copies of 14,000 or so of his letters? About 19,000. 19,000. Okay, 19,000 letters. Does he ever mention Sally Hemings once? Oh, yeah. And what does he say about her? Uh, well, you know, giving instructions about firewood to be taken to her place and other people's place okay. as well. Just main, mundane things, but not much, uh, not okay. many things uh, at all. She, she comes back from France and she pretty much disappears okay. from the family records. And his children by her passed as whites. They were mm -hmm. seven eighths mm -hmm. white. Well, yeah, by Virginia law, they were white. It was not the one drop rule. If you were seven eighths white, you were considered to be white. The two eldest, as I said, go off to live as white people. The two youngest stay in the black community until Eston, the absolute youngest, doesn't feel that his children can have many opportunities in Ohio. He was a violinist. He, he made his living as a musician and there are articles about him and his daughter who was a pianist and so forth. But there was only so far they could go. So he 
takes his family and moves to Madison, Wisconsin, changes his name from Eston Hemings to E.H. Eston Hemings Jefferson, and he goes by E.H. Jefferson. They become white. Um, his sons become prominent in, in Madison community and so forth. So, yeah, he becomes white. Madison Hemings is the only one who stays in the black and community. The fact that these children are all named after friends of Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. is that a clue? Well, yeah. I mean, if you listed all of his children and all of his grandchildren, he had the privilege of naming his grandchildren. You wouldn't t- be able to tell who was whom. So let's talk about, the, this is the getting up to the great paradox of America. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a country where we started saying that all men are to be created equal mm-hmm. and um, everyone's supposed to be able to pursue happiness. Yet the people who enslaved so many slaves were the founding fathers. So how do you square people who are so intelligent as Thomas Jefferson, brilliant in so many different areas, how could they have been slave owners? How do you square those two things? Well, I don't know that we have to. Jefferson knew slavery was wrong and he believed slavery was wrong. But there are many things that we believe about our lives, intellectual ideas that we have that we can't live up to for emotional reasons. You want to say lack of character, lack of strength or whatever. The people who freed slaves in the 18th century during Jefferson's time are people who are under the influence of religion, mainly. And he was not. Uh, Not in the way that the Quakers were evangelical, uh, Methodists and Baptists. Some people question whether he was really Christian. Uh, I think he was a Christian. He's a Christian in his own way. My co-author and I, Peter Onuf, argued about this quite a bit. Yeah, didn't he do his own Bible where he took out some of the miracles of Christ and he kind of had his own Bible where he took out things that he didn't believe in in the Bible? Well, yeah, he did do that. He left what he thought were Jesus' pure teachings okay. and, and not the things that people had added on to uh, Jesus, that Jesus never said that he did. That's, that was his, his view. Jefferson, his view was that whites and blacks if they were equal, mm-hmm. could not live together in right. a society. Is that right? So mm-hmm. his early view was that slavery was wrong, but blacks should leave the country. The liberal position for Jefferson and Marshall and Madison and, and uh, people of that time was that there should be emancipation and expatriation. At first, he thought that you know blacks should go out west, and then no, once it was clear that the West was going to be for white people, that uh, no, there should be some other place. He said whites would never give up their prejudices against blacks. Blacks would never forgive whites for what they had done. And there would be a race war. And we kind of laugh at that, except, you know, we kind of have had sort of one um, racial conflict. You know, we congratulate ourselves. We've, we have come very, very far, but we, it hasn't been easy. It's so, not easy now. Now, you've studied Jefferson for a large number of years, mm-hmm. many, many books on him. Do you admire him more now that you've researched him as much as you have, or do you admire him less now that you know more about him? I admire things about him. I think doing the last book with my co-author, where we're focusing more on the later part of his life, and as I get to be older, I realize how hard it is to do anything in the world, and that it's tough to accomplish something. And he accomplished a lot. And there was a lot that he didn't accomplish. And I just feel, I feel much more humbled thinking, well, what is it that I've done? You know, in in comparison, he helped start a country. And the idea was that the next generation of people would carry things forward. But to say, you know, all right, you start a country, you're a vice president, you're a president, you found a university, 
how come you didn't end slavery is a bit much for me. I mean, I think that's our passion, and it should be our passion to think about race and slavery and all those things. But his passion was we have started a country and was always fearful that it wasn't going to work. We know it. We know, I, was, I was about to say we know it worked. Well, <laughs> yeah, okay. It has all right. worked. It has worked. It has worked. But he didn't know that it was going to work. I mean, it's clear. That's what it is. I, I, it's, it's clearer to me now how paranoid he was and how intent he was on making the experiment go. And all these other things he thought, okay, the slavery thing will take care of itself. But how many times in life have I or other people thought, well, you know, if I could just get here, that other thing will take care of itself. And that other thing is the thing. And he, he could not see that slavery, until Missouri, con the conflict, when he says the slavery will be the rock upon which the union is split. And this is in 1821, but before then, it's those federalists. If, we, if I could just get the politics right, everything else will work out. And that's completely naive. Suppose Thomas Jefferson was sitting here and you have a chance to interview him and say, okay, uh, <laughs> would you say, uh, is it true it's about Sally Hemings? Or would you, what would that be the question you would ask him? Well, if he were here now, I'd say, well, what do you think about all this? <laughs> no, but serious. No, but if I, a question that he could answer on his own, I'd ask him if he was going to make white men send their children back to Africa. I mean, what would be the basis for it? Because when he's writing the will and he's doing the petition to the legislature about letting the men that he is freeing stay in Virginia, and he says, this is where their family and their connections are. And that's the answer to why every African-American should stay in the United States. And so he knew that about the people in his life. I'm, I'm not going to send Burl Colbert and John Hemings back to Africa because their mothers, their fathers, you know, land where my fathers died. All that's, he understood that in his day-to-day -day life. But thinking about things for and a blueprint for the country, it's, this is not going to work. It can't work on a large scale. Well, I want to thank you for a great conversation this evening. Thank, thank you. you very much. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.